This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to Dirt Cheap, a Neon Hum podcast. I'm Jeffrey. And I'm Amanda. Welcome to another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller. Okay, here's what's going on. So we have Phil Norris, who is a bookie, who a police rightfully suspect murdered his wife. He got a hold of his wife's appointment book, and his plan is to go through That's right. <laughs> the next day as if she were still alive and try to figure out who murdered her. <laughs> By doing that. This is the best plan. What buffoonery is to come? Uh, All right, so here we are. It is chapter four of Murder in the Glass Room. I was deep in a complicated dream, an all-star dream. The first one of its kind I'd had since I was a kid. Everybody was in it. Rosa and Joe the doorman, and Jerry and George the head waiter, standing there with his mouth open doing his ha-ha laugh. <laughs> yeah. This is what he's imagining. He's imagining uh, all... Everybody was there. All the, the... So many of these people he does not like or particularly care for, but they're all in his dream. And Edna. She was in it from beginning to end, and everything seemed logical and reasonable. And I knew that if the dream stayed with me for just a short while longer, I'd have it all figured out. But a bell began to ring in my head, cutting across the figures in the dream. I must have tried to shut off the sound of the bell. It was spoiling everything just as I was on the point of putting it all in place neatly, like to solve jigsaw puzzle. But the bell was too insistent. I want to point out that he doesn't describe the dream at all. Like, he describes who is in the dream, and he's like, the dream was almost something I knew what it was, but then I woke up. And it's like, this is a very strange way to begin a chat. Like, Yeah, you, why did he even do this? Typically in fiction, when you describe a dream, usually the dream has some bearing on like the character's life and problems. Like, why <laughs> would you set up a chapter this way with a dream that means nothing? You set it up as an all-star dream, I dude. I know. This was supposed to be the this was supposed to be an all-star dream. Give me some all-star content here. <laughs> I opened my eyes. It was daylight. I looked at the clock on the fireplace mantel. It said 8:30 a.m. I couldn't remember setting it. Then I realized it wasn't the alarm. It was the doorbell. I opened the door. It was Police Sergeant Murdoch. Morning, Mr. Norris. Sorry to disturb you. He stood there making apologies. I got hold of his arm and pulled him inside and closed the door after him. <laughs> Is that, it's not like a little bit suspicious, <laughs> right? Like thing to do to a policeman, just like grab their arm and like bring them inside and quickly close the door after him. <laughs> like nothing suspicious about doing that. 
<laughs> yeah, what did suspicious mean in 1945? Uh, we'll get to that, about how much you had to do to be suspicious. Excellent. Um, that's coming right up. He followed me into the big living room. Maybe I should come back later, Murdoch said, looking at my wrinkled, slept-in clothes. No, stay here, I told him. My eyes were still half-closed. I'd be glad to come back later if... Sit down. Be with you in a minute, I said to him, and went out of the room. <laughs> I know that, like, Murdoch is his quote-unquote friend or ally, but, like, he is still a policeman, and this is all, like, coming across as very suspicious to me. <laughs> it's also funny that, like, Murdoch has given him so many outs why not just take the out? I agree. <laughs> like, it seemed like Murdoch was kind of giving him one yep. and he whiffed it. Yeah, he's super weird. He was like, I'll come back later and and not pursue you as a murder suspect. <laughs> and he, <laughs> Phil was like, no, 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 come in. I want to be pursued for murder. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just nice to be wanted. I, You know what? Even if it's wanted for murder. <laughs> I will also say, like, I fully accept Murdoch being a crooked cop. Again, this is Los Angeles mm. <laughs> in the 40s. He's, he it's is, crooked now. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, as we're about to find out, the book hasn't explicitly called him crooked yet. Nice. Get ready. Strap in because <laughs> no there's no such thing as uh, all cops are bastards. A cab, a cab, baby. Be with you in a minute, I said to him and went out of the room. I needed that minute to brace myself for what I knew was coming, but I couldn't stall for too long without Murdoch getting suspicious, as if uh, he wasn't suspicious already. All I did was brush my teeth and throw some cold water on my face. Then I went back to the living room. Okay, this implies that that Phil does more than brush his teeth and throw cold water on his face in the morning. Do you think he, like, puts any product or anything in his hair? To... I really doubt it. Yeah, I mean, when me you look either. at the cover illustration, his hair doesn't necessarily look good. He's got, no. like, a hat on sort of halfway. Yeah. Uh, he strikes me as the shit shower in a shave type. Yes. I think he probably does more than that, but like one step more. <laughs> I don't buy him as being somebody who does a lot of stuff to get ready in the morning, as this sentence implies. He, I, I, I think, think he's just doing it fast. I just think he's doing exactly what he normally would do, but just really fast. Faster, a.k.a. worse. <laughs> AKA yeah. worse. I mean, yeah. Like, I've got this idea in my head that, like, in a way, he kind of wishes he was Edna, that he wishes he did care about his looks. Yeah, absolutely. That he wishes he was, like, a fancy man. <laughs> Murdoch looked nervous and apologetic. He started the same business about coming back later, but I stopped him. He was as tough a cop as they come, but he always acted like little Lord Fultonroy with me. There was a reason. He was on my payroll. Had been for a couple of years. Not that he did anything dirty or crooked. Just smoothed things over here or there when a situation called for it. I want to point out that that is a very funny distinction. It's like, no, nothing dirty, nothing crooked. He just, you know, smoothed out situations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... He just did dirty, crooked stuff for me, but light 
crookedness. <laughs> Not heavy crookedness. I mean, it sounds about white to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was so apologetic that I had to tell him to get to the point. Okay, Mr. Norris, he said. You saw Mrs. Norris yesterday, didn't you? Sure, I said. I had dinner with her at Riley's. You had an argument with her? You know I did. Half of Hollywood must know it by now. Sure, I know, Murdoch said. The doorbell rang again. It was the waiter with the coffee. The waiter? Where are they? I guess. he. Oh, yeah, because he lives in a hotel? Oh. I thought he lived in like an apartment, but maybe he lives in like a It used hotel. to be a way it used to be way more common to to live in hotels. Right. It yeah. was, it wasn't as expensive as it is now. Right. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. This is just like just makes me think, oh, it's it's like ancient postmates. <laughs> ancient postmates. <laughs> just like, oh yeah, people just coming to your door giving you things, you know. I picked the pot off the ground, poured, and took a long swallow of it, black. Immediately, I felt better. Murdoch kept quiet until the waiter disappeared. Why did you sock her? He asked as soon as the door was closed. I poured a cup for him. Sugar? I asked. Four, he said. Then, why did you sock her? Literally like... Of course you socked her. Just tell me why you socked her. It's like right. there's there's such an assumption that everyone's hitting the women in their homes because they were. And cops were extra likely to do that and still are. So like. In this instance, he did so very publicly. So there's a lot of witnesses. So exactly. it, it would be easy to establish a motive in a murder. You hated your wife, didn't you? <laughs> well, this brings up an interesting point, which is that we skip the sales copy in the beginning of the book, and it is directly relevant to what we're talking about right now. Oh my God, so okay. I think this will speak to the norms of domestic violence uh, circa the mid-40s. So just a quick heads up, if you don't want to hear a discussion about domestic violence, skip ahead a few minutes. Okay, so on the very first page of the book, before the cast of characters, there's a page where it says, in all capital letters, never hit your wife, dot, 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 in public. Wow. Real, real cheeky. Real, real, real cheeky. Ooh. Real cheeky shit there. That's got me hot. Like, I'm very upset. It really does speak to the times that, like, that was the big, like, lead yeah. sentence of the sales copy. Like, it that's supposed to get you hype for it, reading this book excited. in 1945. It's like, oh, you're hitting your wife. If, ooh. All right, get to tell me more. That, that punchline <laughs> of dot, dot, dot in public. Just uh, imagine a dude at the store look, checking that out and giving, just having a little chuckle to himself and adding it to his basket. If they, like, had, <laughs> if they had lenticular holograms at that time, it would be just like an eye blinking. You would just like, you just move just it back and forth. Face. And a winky face would, yeah, would just wink at the reader. Wink, wink, wink. I mean, like, full disclosure, like, I'm a child from a household where there was domestic violence for a time. And, like, there was a period where the cops would come and, like, 
quote unquote, break it up, talk to the guy, let him cool off. Mm-hmm. And then they would just leave. Yeah. Um, like in the worst case scenario, I think one time uh, the the person was arrested for like a night and then just went back home. Like, so it's just like this, this shit happens all the time and the cops truly do not care. Right. Um, and it's only when it's presented to them that they do have to pretend to care. Yeah, I mean, they there have been cops who have said point blank, we wish we did not have to do this. We wish that this was somebody else's job. And it should be somebody else's job. It absolutely job. is it someone be, else's job. It should be the job of people who are trained in conflict de-escalation, uh, you know. Trauma-informed Conflict resolution that centers women and femmes and other marginalized people in relationships. It's just yeah, who are who are insane. nine times out of ten the the victims in in these situations. Exactly. As instead of like sending a guy with a gun to be to point the right. gun. Well, what if you send an un like they don't they won't tell you how many dudes show up. No. However many dudes show up is who's here, and they all have guns. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's Fifteen insane. guys with guns and maybe some dogs. You won't know. You won't know. Be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. We're back. Uh, Let's see. It continues. (laughs) Oh, the book continues. In this case, he does. In what case? Murdoch fidgeted with his feet. One of his shoelaces was torn and had been awkwardly tied together. Look, Mr. Norris, you haven't lived with her for some time. No, and I haven't been out with Queen Wilhelmina in some time either. Uh, Queen Wilhelmina, as uh, our show's producer found out, was the Queen of the Netherlands. Right. Uh, it, at this time, and she had been for uh, decades prior, and she was apparently the wor- the world's first female billionaire. Oh, cool. I'm sure uh, the centuries of generational wealth from colonialism had nothing to do with that. No, she earned every penny. Yeah, self-made. <laughs> she was hashtag girl boss. Self-made queen. Self-made monarch. Um, it's just an interesting deflection tactic on Phil's part. It's just like, I haven't been out with Scarlett Johansson either. What's your point? I haven't been out with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, he, it's funny how for a not guilty person, how guilty he talks. Yeah, he is He's... speaking very guiltily. <laughs> you had this terrific argument with Herd Riley's last night. 
What was up? I shrugged my shoulders and offered him another cup of coffee. No kidding, Mr. Norris, he was almost pleading. Why did you sock her? Because she said the Giants have a better team than Brooklyn. Murdoch looked worried. Look, Mr. Norris, he said, we two kind of understand each other. The way things have been and all, I mean. Sure, Murdoch, of course. He swallowed hard. I'll, I'll probably get burned for this, he said. But I gotta tell you, Mr. Norris. What is it, man? You're in trouble. Terrible trouble. I let him struggle. Your wife's dead. The words seemed to burn his tongue. I didn't have any difficulty at all reacting in the expected way. But before I had time to let a decent pause of shock and sorrow register, he jumped in with, She was murdered. I let myself sink into a chair. My acting was probably hammy, but if Murdoch noticed it, he didn't say. After a minute, I asked, Who? His eyes were on the floor. They think maybe you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, Mur yeah, Murdoch is being so gingerly about oh, this. Oh yeah, he is. He's got like his two pointer fingers like rubbing together. Like, Ooh, I don't know if you want, but maybe you're a suspect, and I'm sorry to tell you. Ooh, this is so sad for me <laughs> to say it to you, my best friend, <laughs> who pays me <laughs> to do illegal things, but. Uh, you may be the murderer. <laughs> you may be that bad guy. <laughs> Murdoch. Murdoch. Uh. <laughs> me? Yeah. But, but why me? On account of that sock at Riley's. And various other matters, you know. Fingerprint analysis. <laughs> and, and the like. <laughs> He doesn't actually if, say fingerprint like, analysis. Yeah, if the there like. was DNA, then it would be everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is lucky in this in that sense. But boy, did he leave a lot of fingerprint evidence at the scene of the crime. That's the way they've got it figured. But that sock doesn't make me a murderer, I protested. Love Lo sentences like that make me so glad. Oh, man. <laughs> Gotta love them. Yep. One sock in the face doesn't make me a killer, Murdoch. You know that. He stared at my chest. Then he asked, When did you see her before Riley's? Day before yesterday. I went to a party at her house. Anything happened there? No. No fight? No smack in the nose? No. That seemed to satisfy him before he rose to go. Oh man, I don't like that that satisfied him. He should not be satisfied. It's like, it's like, oh, well, well, he didn't hit her at that party. So he only hit her that one time. Maybe it was a coincidence. I mean, this is like, it would be hilarious if it wasn't what already happens. Like the police are so reluctant to arrest a white guy. Yeah. <laughs> that like. It takes a lot. It takes a lot. I walked him to the door and said I appreciated his telling me. He brushed it off. There was something bothering him. Tell me, he said, fidgeting with the doorknob. Did you talk to her again after you left Riley's? No. Those were the last words I had with her. He considered this for a moment. 
It's tough, he sighed, even if you weren't working at it. He lit a cigarette and stared at the match until it burned down to his fingernail. I'd take it easy, Phil, if I were you, he said, and walked out the door without looking at me. It was the first time he'd ever called me anything except Mr. Norris. Murdoch's visit was a shock. I hadn't expected the cops to be on the trail so soon, and not so close to me. I had to get going on my plan. I had to get out the apartment before Homicide arrived to take me downtown for questioning. I was sure they didn't yet have enough on me to hold me, but they could mess up my day. I felt listless. I didn't have the energy to get started. Maybe it was because I couldn't get Edna's face out of my mind. Her two faces. One, the Edna I'd met and married and lived with, and the other, the Edna whose corpse had been stretched out on the floor the night before. A shave, a shower, and fresh clothes didn't help much. It wasn't 10 yet, but I decided to try HO1168. I dialed the number and waited. So our producer Carla looked this up, and I didn't know. The HO, it's something called the telephone exchange. So Phil is dialing the number, and some letters correspond to some numbers. So you know how that works. You know, it's like 1-900-Freddy-Frights, you know, and you would see, okay, this number corresponds to this letter, et cetera, and that's how you type it. So that, that's what Phil's doing. But in the early days of phones, the operator did everything. So you pick up the phone and you would say, operator, get me HO1168. And HO was basically like the area. It was for the operator's benefit because it was easier to remember the mnemonic devices for them. Oh. So they would, it would be easier to remember HO than, say, 55, you know, 68 or whatever because they had to remember tons of them. Imagine having that capacity. Women were computers. Women are the original computers. Absolutely. In every way. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. If you were listening and you remember you were a computer, shout out to you. We we tip our hats to you. Thank you for doing that work. Heroes. At a, at a time when there were not pocket phones. How old would you be Would you be at this point if you were, let's say you were working the telephones in the mid-40s. Are you still? Like, like early 20s. Like everyone, yeah. Let's say you were in your early 20s. Let's say you were 25 in 1945. Okay. 45, 55. Yeah. 65, 75, 85, 95, 05, 15, and 20, 6, 7, 7, 75. That was 75 years ago. Yes. I went to Emerson College. Where there are no math classes. There are no math classes. So 75. So you'd be like like about 100. Yeah, yeah. So if you are about 100 years old. You are listening to this podcast and you worked as a telephone operator in the mid-40s. Thank you. And thank you for listening. You are a special listener. (laughs) You're one of our special listeners. I'm going to go back to the book. (laughs) I think think we've we've gotten to a place where we should probably head back. Yeah, I think so. Okay, great. (laughs) I dialed the number and waited. Hello. I thought it was a man's voice, even though it was pretty high and there was an unmistakable foreign tone to it, then the way the L was softened and the rising inflection of the O. Hello? I said. Who is this? The voice said, 
This is Charles speaking. Charles, I repeated. Yes, Charles. Who is this, please? I thought fast. This is the post office, I said. <laughs> that is like the it's, it's the worst lie you could think of. No, it works so well. Give Phil a little okay. bit of credit. It works so well. <laughs> okay, great. This is the post office, I said. We have a package here for you marked unknown at this address. What is your correct address, please? Is it post office? Yes, Mr. Wagner speaking. How did you know my number? Information, I said. He made up his mind that I was on the up and up. 4451 Sunset, he said. Thank you. I replied and hung up. It was a good idea. It worked wow. well. He just called and said he was the post office. He called. He said he was the post office. He had a package. He got his number through uh, information services. He, he dialed the operator. This is very plausible. That's, that's plausible. Wow. Okay, and he did a competent thing. He did, dude. This is like... This was my first indication that he could be a detective, that he could actually get this done. Because, like, up until this point, he was like, I can't do detective work. I don't know anything about detective work. I'm not particularly smart. I'm not good at negotiating, so I'm not good in tense situations. It's like, how is he going to do this? Do and it's anything. Like, it's like, oh, okay, he could trick a guy. He could trick a guy into giving him his address. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, gosh. And, the, like, the address also, I'm, like, of course, immediately trying to figure out where that is. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's Echo Park or Silver Lake. Be right back. back I love that Phil is going to Silver Lake what are some of the things that Phil would do if he was going to modern Silver Lake would you think ooh uh, he's gonna hit up the intelligentsia good get some writing done he wants to be seen he wants to be seen yeah, Phil goes to Intelligentsia, immediately calls out the coffee racket. Yes. Calls out the barista racket, the coffee bean racket. The novel writer racket. The, novel the screenwriter racket. Oh, the screenwriter racket is like his like number one racket. The writer who doesn't write is like his number one pet peeve. What are some of the other things he's doing while well, he's in modern day Silver Lake? I know that like... He's going to go to the to the new Doc Martin store and Ooh, uh, scoff at all the women wearing combat boots. Great. Good. Uh, he's going to go. Oh, they to- want to be more like those lousy veterans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, that's exactly what he would think. What else would he do? He'll go to Circus of Books. Yeah, he could have know. gone to Circus of Books and gotten some books. Silver Lake was a historically gay neighborhood for a while. I don't know if it was in the 40s, but it definitely was by like the late 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, maybe he is cruising. I mean, it. it's... <laughs> Phil cruising is the funniest thing you could possibly imagine. Well, he's got the car. He's got he's, his... Yeah, he pulls up in front of the black cat and right. <laughs> is like, hey, fellas. Hey, <laughs> I hate myself. I hate myself. <laughs> and uh, I hate probably all of you, but who would like to have sex with me? <laughs> uh, who, will I, who will I resent next? I grabbed my hat and started for the elevator. Then I stopped. The back stairs would be safer. I walked down the seven flights went into the garage through the back hall, and drove off without seeing anyone. I drove down Sunset, 
until I hit the 4400 block. There it was, 4451 Sunset. It was one of those big Hollywood buildings, only two stories high, stretching over most of the block. The ground floor was divided into stores, and the second story was made up of offices. Parking the car against the curb, I walked up and down the length of the building, looking at the stores, but I noticed they had individual numbers of their own, so I headed for the main entrance. Inside, I looked at the directory. There were maybe 20 names in all, but there was no Charles. The nearest to it was Sharky, JL, real estate. I climbed up the stairs and walked along the hall, looking at the names on the glass doors. There were a few real estate offices, a couple of fly-by-night procedures, a doctor whose name was Bison, and a few other assorted enterprises, but no Charles. Thank you for all this unnecessary detail. I appreciate it. Um, literally could have just been, you know, I looked around, the, I looked at the directory. There was no Charles, you know, you know as hard as I looked. Um, but, yep. uh, but okay, let's describe this, but not describe people's faces so we could get a sense of what they look like. Instead, let's just describe them as warm <laughs> He's my- a guy who just gives a vibe check, right? and it's always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I started making the rounds of the hallways again, but I still couldn't find it. Dejectedly, I walked down the stairs and studied the directory again. An old man, apparently the building caretaker, came up to me and said, Can I help you, sir? I'm looking for somebody named Charles. Charles? Oh, Charles, just moved in. Upstairs and to your right. Uh, All the way. End of the hall. Number 227. 227. 227. My girl, Jack A. Uh, (laughs) Shout out. Shout out to 227. One of my favorite shows growing up. (laughs) I climbed the stairs again and walked to room 227. There was no sign on the glass door. I pushed it open and a little bell tinkled politely. The room was well furnished, but everything looked new, as if the wrappings had just been taken off. In fact, a pair of red velours window draperies were lying on the floor, ready to be hung. Oh man, he's like so excited to hang up those drapes. Yeah, like they were just—they were, just, were just begging to be hung. Yeah, and I like how like he somehow found a way to like kind of shade the office. Like yep. you can't just like compliment something. Mm-mm. He's like the furniture's nice, but it's too new. Like right? it's too new, so <laughs> there's something bad about it. I don't know. Yep, it's just like. Nobody nobody was expecting your arrival, dude. Why are you upset that the office wasn't ready? <laughs> it wasn't ready for me. It's like, calm down. Phil, calm down. Calm down. Take a deep breath. I couldn't make out what kind of establishment it was. A minute later, a slight young man with a pencil black mustache and wavy hair floated in from another door in the room and said, Yes? You Charles? I asked. He nodded. Do you expect Mrs. Norris? He shrugged. I know Mrs. Norris was to be here at 10, I said, taking a long shot. He looked at me suspiciously. Who are you? He asked. I'm not a bill collector, I assured him. I just wanted to let you know that she won't be in today. What is this all about? He asked. What are you trying to lead up to? What do you think? I asked. His eyes took on a curious expression. 
At first I thought it was fright, then I couldn't tell whether he was getting ready to dunk or to spring. Look, mister, he said at last, I don't know what's eating you. What do you think is eating me, I said. Or who sent you here or why, he continued. I still couldn't make out what his game was. It was then that I noticed the small, rectangular business cards elegantly arranged on a copper plate on a table. Charles watched me as I walked over and picked one up. I started to laugh. I laughed till my gut hurt. Charles looked at me as if I were crazy. The card said, Charles's coiffeurs. So HO1168 was a hairdresser, and Edna had had an appointment at 10 to have her hair done. I mean, I don't know. It, it sounds like they're... It sounds like things might be in disarray for whatever reason, but like, wouldn't there be like stuff set up, like scissors, a chair, like a yeah. hairdressing chair? That's like- a great point. Like he doesn't. The writers do not describe the furniture. They just say there's a lot of new furniture, right? And that there's curtains that haven't been hung up. But like. If the furniture were, say, those lean-over salon chairs <laughs> right, right. and, say, those, like, a salon sink. sinks. Right. Like, it, Hair so- products, spray, scissors, blow dryers. One could come to a conclusion pretty quick instead of drawing the scene out yeah. unnecessarily. Yeah, salons are pretty specific-looking places. <laughs> right. So, yeah, pretty funny that uh, Detective Norris here wasn't able to figure this out. So HO1168 was a hairdresser, and Edna had had an appointment at 10 to have her hair done, or else she had put down the number in order to call off the appointment. What's wrong? Charles lisped. She won't be able to make it, I said. My first appointment in the new place, he wailed. She's sick? No, she just won't be able to make it. Dude, this is sad because like it feel like the way it's coming across to me is like <laughs> a dude who doesn't know how to mourn. Yeah. Is like this is his mourning process. He just wants to meet everyone that Edna has in this address book just to be like she's gone, but I can't tell you why. I went out the door and the little bell tinkled after me. I guess between Charles Lisped and Little Bell Tinkled After Me and Hairdresser. Oh, this is the most homophobic shit. Yeah, this is. Like, this whole scene has been dripping with homophobia. Yeah, absolutely. No, Edna would never again be able to make it. Charles' nimble fingers would never again rifle through her thick black hair, molding it like sculptor's clay. No more oil. No more rinse or subtly scented perfume. (laughs) Amanda, what's so funny about this very specific description of what a hairdresser does, despite the fact that he wasn't able to identify the fact that he was at a hairdresser? Yeah, the fact that he's now suddenly able to imagine all the things a hairdresser is capable of doing (laughs) is super unbelievable. He wants to be Edna. He wants to live this, the Edna. He wants to live Edna's life and has studied every aspect of Edna's I, life. I have this theory uh, that I will save until we get further in the book. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. I feel I I need to hear more, but I have a I have a suspicion. All right, great. No more oil, no more rinse or subtly scented perfume. 
only the white satin coffin pillow. And when that had rotted, as it would, only the moist earth. So that Bone is, chilling. That was chapter four of Murder in the Glass Room. Any uh, any thoughts, Amanda, on what we just read? Oh, any thoughts? Yeah, any, <laughs> any, any thoughts to sum up? Um, again, uh, Phil Norris needs some meditation. Yep. He needs to counseling. learn how to breathe. He needs any counseling. <gasps> and like, I, I am super concerned that he is just going to keep going places <laughs> in LA and just ruin a lot of other people's day. <laughs> and I'm upset about that in advance. Uh, well, Amanda, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Phil does continue going to Edna's appointments. Next time on Dirt Cheap, Phil Norris is going to be visiting the office of our old friend, Professor Stanley. Tune in next time. <laughs> well, Amanda, you'll be here. <laughs> yeah, I'll be here. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. 